Our text today is from Luke chapter 20. I invite you to make your way there. We're going to look at a rather lengthy passage of Scripture, but we're going to do so in several sections as we move forward. Our subject is the authority of Jesus. Thomas Troger said that there are many titles that historians in the future may give our era, but one they are certain to consider is the age of suspicion. There's suspicion of political authorities, suspicion of economic authorities, suspicion of religious authorities. People are suspicious of scientific authorities. There is a distrust of those who have authority in the various areas of life. And as a result of that, it also affects people in how they see things spiritually and how they respond even to the Lord. We're going to look today at a healthy model of authority in Jesus and how he lived and served and died and was raised again and then how he lives among us and through the power of the Spirit applies the truth of God to our lives in such a way that he puts us where we need to be in our relationship with God and gives us the guidance and the direction that we need under his authority. After the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus went into the temple. And when he went into the temple, he cast out money changers who were there from the court of the Gentiles. The problem with the money changers is that they were exploiting the people who were coming for worship for their own financial gain. And rather than being a place where God was sought and sacrifices were sincerely offered and repentance was genuine, the temple had become a den of thieves. Jesus made it clear in chapter 19 in verse 46 that the house of God is to be a house of prayer. We considered three aspects of prayer. Prayer requires access to God. We have that access through the blood of Jesus. Prayer relies on the truth of God. We have that through the word and through the living word. And then prayer results in praise to God. So it's through prayer that we're able to worship God and experience his blessing, provision, grace, and peace. And we're able to submit to him because he's the only one who is worthy of our submission to his authority. I want to begin reading here and read first uh, verse 1 through verse 8 in Luke chapter 20. This is what the Word of God says. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. 
Let me give you by way of definition, a, perhaps a better understanding of what authority is. Authority, as it's defined, is the power or the right to give orders, to make decisions, or to enforce obedience. We know all too well that authority can be used in a healthy way or it can be abused in an unhealthy way. It all depends on how it's exercised, how it's implemented among people. Authority is a significant biblical theme. The most popular word for it in the New Testament essentially means power. It's found over a hundred times in the New Testament. We also know that the age in which we live has a significant problem with authority of any kind. And that presents problems of its own. In Luke chapter 20, we find Jesus again teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news. And there he encountered people who questioned the source of his authority. And from this encounter, we can learn what the Bible teaches about the authority of Jesus and how it applies to our lives and our service to God in the world. First of all, the authority of Jesus is anchored in who he is. We have identified here the chief priest and scribes with the elders who came to Jesus. The chief priests were temple officials. The scribes were teachers of the law comprised of both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The elders were probably laymen who served in some type of political leadership, a function along those lines. And the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders comprised what was a powerful aristocracy. They asked Jesus two questions. The first question they asked Jesus is, by what authority was he acting? The things that they refer to here was probably a reference to his cleansing of the temple. The question dealt with what kind of authority he was acting with. In other words, was he presenting himself as a prophet or a priest or a king? What was it that he was presenting himself as as he was acting with authority? The second question that they asked is, who gave Jesus the authority? They wanted to know who was backing him. Was he acting on his own or was he acting on behalf of another? One of the techniques that Jesus often used when he was engaging in discussion with people, particularly those who were trying to catch him in some sort of a trap, is that he would answer a question with a question of his own. And that's what he does here. He asked them about John's baptism and whose authority was behind that. Now remember, the religious leaders did not approve of the baptizing ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist called it like he saw it. When he dealt with the religious authorities, he spoke very plainly to them and it would ultimately cost him his life. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 7 and 8, it says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. Now the people, the crowd who was listening on to this exchange, 
between Jesus and this religious aristocracy held John the Baptist in high regard. And these leaders wanted to be careful that they didn't deny his authority, so they refused to answer the question of Jesus. Because if they replied to the question of Jesus that the authority for John's baptism was from heaven, then the question would follow, then why didn't you believe him? If they said that the authority for John's baptism was of human origin, the people would stone them. And so they answered that they did not know the origin. Jesus, in turn, refused to tell them by what authority he had cleansed the temple. He said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The indication is that he was doing his work with the same authority with which John the Baptist baptized, and that was none other than the authority of God in heaven. And according to the Bible, the authority of Jesus was granted by God the Father. Now, let's just pause here and make an admission that when we begin to talk about the triune God, and we begin to talk about the dynamics of how uh, authority was granted to Jesus, we are in deep water. And there is much here that we receive by faith because we don't understand all of the intricacies of it. But what we know is that God exists as one in essence and three in person. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he is co-equal and co-eternal. We gain our understanding of these things from the Bible, and we understand where the authority of Jesus came from. You remember in the Great Commission that Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. He also said in John chapter 17 and verse 2, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So what is the source of the authority of Jesus? God the Father gave it to him. What are the limits of the authority of Jesus? God gave it all to his son. What is the purpose of the authority of Jesus? It goes back to the purpose of Jesus himself and why he came to this earth. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The authority of Jesus was given so that he might grant eternal life to all who repent and believe. And by virtue of that, all who refuse to repent and believe will be under judgment. And judgment has been entrusted to the Son by the Father. The authority of Jesus is anchored in who he is as the creator. John chapter 1 says, apart from him, not one thing that was created that has been created. The authority of Jesus is anchored in who he is as the Redeemer. It's by his blood that we've been purchased and we've been reconciled to God. The authority of Jesus is anchored in who he is as the sustainer. Colossians 1 says that he is before all things and by him all things hold together or all things consist. Jesus asserted his authority in who he is, his identity as the Son of God. And then second, the authority of Jesus is communicated in what he has said. Look again in verse 1. Scripture indicates that he was teaching the people, and then we were given a little bit more description, 
He was proclaiming the good news. He was teaching the people, and in this passage, he was proclaiming the good news. Jesus taught with authority, and he taught with the authority of God's revealed word. I'm reminded of a time in Scripture when Jesus went to Capernaum. And in Mark chapter 1, in verse 21, it says, Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching. And listen to what it says about the teaching of Jesus. And they were astonished, verse 22 of Mark chapter 1, at his teaching. For he taught them as one who has authority and not as the scribes. The crowds, when they heard Jesus teach, they were astonished. They were overwhelmed by his teaching. And the authority of Jesus is what amazed them because here he was acting as God's spokesman. The contrast between the words of man and the words of God was astounding. And F.F. Bruce said, the scribes spoke by authority, resting all that they said on the traditions that had been said before. But Jesus spake with authority out of his own soul. Now, you've probably heard the the phrase, uh, bully pulpit, along the way somewhere. It's fairly common usage in our society, but you might not know what the actual meaning of it is or where uh, the origin of it uh, came from. We all know the negative connotation all too well of the word bully, but this phrase is quite the opposite in its intended meaning. President Theodore Roosevelt served as the President of the United States at the dawn of the 20th century. And as the story goes, President Roosevelt, sitting at his desk, was reading to a few friends a forthcoming message that he was going to deliver. At the close of a paragraph that was described as a paragraph of distinctly ethical character, uh, he wheeled around in his chair and he said, I suppose my critics will call this preaching, but I've got such a bully pulpit. And so the phrase was born. The quote was published in the New York Times. It means an office or a position that provides an immense opportunity to speak on an issue. It is a conspicuous position uh, that provides an opportunity to speak out and to be listened to. And the bully in this context is an adjective meaning superb or wonderful in the most superb or wonderful way. I say to you that Jesus Christ had the ultimate bully pulpit of all in the most positive of all intended meanings. Because here he was as the embodiment of truth, God in the flesh who had come to dwell among men. He's speaking truth to people in that moment, and he's about to give his life as a sacrifice, as the ultimate payment for sinners. And Jesus did not appeal to the teaching of other people as the scribes did when they appealed to the teaching of the rabbis. As Matthew Henry noted, Jesus taught as one that knew the mind of God and was commissioned to declare it. He taught as it was with the authority of God himself, the incarnate word delivering the word to the people. Jesus asserted his authority in what he said. And then that brings me to the third idea. The authority of Jesus calls for a decision about who he is, what he has said, 
and what he has done. Now we turn our attention to the parable of the vineyard owner, and we're going to spend just a little bit more time in this section of the scripture, beginning in verse 9. Now he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Verse 13, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, That must never happen. But he looked at them and said, Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. In this section, Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard owner to further explain his authority. It's interesting that this is one of only three parables that are included in all of the synoptic gospels, with the sower and the mustard seed being the other two parables. And anytime we come to a parable, we need to understand as best we can what's being symbolized. Now, let me give you a word of caution with parables. Sometimes we can drive them to the extreme, and the analogies or the teaching that we try to draw from them uh, can take us to a place that was never intended. So we've got to be careful about that. We take it as the most obvious symbolism and meaning. And thankfully, this particular parable is quite clear in what Jesus is teaching. The specific parts of this parable carry meaning. We have the man who planted the vineyard. And the man who planted the vineyard, who is the vineyard owner, represents God the Father. The vineyard itself represents Israel, at least initially, and then more broadly, the world. The tenant farmers represent the religious leaders of Israel. And the servants represent the prophets sent by God to Israel. Ultimately, the son is Jesus the Messiah. When they heard this parable, they should have thought about Isaiah 5. Because after all, these were people who knew the scripture. They knew the Old Testament, certainly. And in Isaiah 5, the prophet calls Israel God's vineyard and warns them that he would lay waste to it because it only would produce worthless grapes. Now, let me ask you a question. Why does somebody plant a vineyard? They plant a vineyard because they want it to produce fruit. That's the reason. It was a common arrangement in those days for an owner to actually rent out his vineyard to tenant farmers. Those tenant farmers would pay a percentage of the crop uh, each year to the owner. And at the right time, the owner 
would send a servant to collect what the farmers owed him. And when this begins to happen in this parable, it all goes downhill from there. Several themes arise from the teaching of Jesus in this parable. There's the theme of the love and the patience of God. It's overwhelming. God wanted them to know him. He planted a wonderful vineyard in the world in which people could know him and walk with him by faith. The people were privileged to be able to work in the owner's vineyard. God raised up the nation of Israel and then sent prophets to tell them of the coming Messiah. The owner planted it all. All they had to do was go to the vineyard and work. It was freely entrusted to them. God did everything to provide for Israel, his vineyard. He drove out the wicked nations. He gave them the promised land. He protected them and gave them leaders. They were to be a light to the nations. He sent prophets to tell them of the coming Messiah. But those prophets were beaten, treated shamefully, wounded, and ultimately sent away empty-handed. But he didn't stop there. He also sent them his beloved son. Perhaps they would respect him, but rather than respect him, they killed him. And in the midst of all of this, the love and the patience of God was poured out on the people. Now, there's an application for us in the age that we live in. God wants you to know him. He wants you to be forgiven of your sins to be in right standing with him. He wants you as a redeemed person to go into his vineyard and work and to serve him and to have a fruitful life. And it's the overwhelming love and patience of God that is at work in each one of our lives into which we should respond. We find here as well the theme of the sacrificial death of Jesus. His death was not A surprise to God the Father. God the Father and God the Son knew that he would be rejected and killed. In the telling of the story, Jesus brings out what I think is the vineyard owner's dilemma to show both the depth of God's amazing love and the depth of the wickedness that rests in the human heart. Here was Jesus who holds the entire inheritance. He offers this inheritance to everyone who will repent and believe in him. It is offered freely. But he was killed in what they thought was a takeover. But it would ultimately end in a disaster for all who instigated it. The others were servants who had come, but this was the beloved son of God. He was in a category all to himself. And even knowing that he would endure the penalty for every sin that we would commit, the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to take on human flesh and come to the evil of this world that we might be redeemed. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And there's the theme of the righteous judgment of God and how we should live in light of it. I recall a phrase in Romans chapter 11 where it speaks, Paul does, of beholding the kindness and the severity of God. 
Here Jesus is the final messenger of God. He's the sum of the revelation of God to people. And if you reject his kindness, you will experience his severity because all that remains is judgment. And right here in the midst of this parable, Jesus announced judgment. The owner of the vineyard would come and he would destroy the farmers and he would give the vineyard to others. What's he talking about there? Well, remember the vineyard was given to Israel. They were the people of God who were to represent God in the world. But then God would graft in the Gentiles to accomplish his purpose and even still not be finished with his people, Israel. So there's a missionary thread that's running through this passage that God intended from the beginning that this good news, this reconciliation, this forgiveness, this inheritance would not be limited to Israel alone. That was not God's intended plan. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, but he told him that he would make him a father of a great nation and that through that nation, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So it was God's intent that the gospel would go to every tribe and tongue and nation. And God is working out his plan as the gospel is proclaimed to the world. And there's a theme here that God expects faithfulness and fruitfulness from his people in the vineyard. He wants us to serve him, to make him known, to glorify his name, and to willingly submit to his authority because it's always exercised in a good and righteous way for our good and for God's glory. When the crowd heard what Jesus taught, according to verse 16, they exclaimed, that must never happen. See, one of the things we note sometimes in parables is that people don't get what's happening. It's still shrouded a little bit, and they're trying to figure out the the meaning of it. Oh, these people got what he was saying. They they knew what he was saying. They were like, may that never happen. Jesus has asserted his authority in what he has done, and it calls us to a decision. It calls us to a decision about that authority. Now I draw your attention to verse 17 of Luke chapter 20. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. A direct quote from Psalm 118. A stone that the masons threw away turns out to be the most important stone of all. Jesus is often connected to a stone or a rock in the Bible. When he was speaking to Peter and he said, On this rock I will build my church. He was speaking of himself, that he would be the rock on which the church was built. He was the rock of provision that followed Israel in the desert. He is the stone cut without hands that crushes the kingdoms of this world in the book of Daniel. He is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense to all who do not believe. The commentator Fitzmaier said the cornerstone was designated in antiquity as the stone used at the building's corner. It bore the weight or the stress of the walls. It would have functioned somewhat like a keystone or a capstone in an arch or some other architectural form. It was the stone which was essential or crucial to the whole structure. And since ancient times, builders have utilized cornerstones 
The cornerstone usually being the largest and most solid and most carefully constructed of any in the edifice. And watch this. Jesus is the cornerstone in the edifice of his church. And without him, nothing is built. Further, everything in his church is to align with him And Jesus is the standard by which everything else is measured. He is the standard. He is the one to whom we look. He's the one that we look to for truth because he's the embodiment of it. He's the one that we look to for guidance because he will never lead us astray. He's the one that we look to for our hope because God calls us his friend. And he is the one that we look to for how we're to live our lives and the character with which we are to live because it is God's expressed will that we be conformed to the image of his son. And here Jesus in this moment was being rejected, but he would ultimately show himself as supreme and ultimately his role would be asserted as judge. According to verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. All judgment has been entrusted to the son who has the authority to exact it. Now we come to verse 20, and I want to include verses 20 to 26 because I really think they fit the context of the discussion. They seem somewhat like an addendum, but I want to look through this just for a moment. And then I'm going to close uh, very quickly. Verse 20 says, They watched closely and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. This is an earthly authority, not a heavenly one. They questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. They're completely blowing smoke as they're saying all this stuff. Verse 20, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well, then he told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able to catch him in what he said in public. And being amazed at his answer, they became silent. They were angry with Jesus, but they were also afraid of the people. They relentlessly continued their pursuit. They sent spies to try to trip him up so that they could hand him over as one who was guilty of political insurrection. But Jesus knew fully what they were up to, and he states his point plainly about what they were to do. They could not catch him in the trap. And noticing what he had done, they became silent. Jesus has the ultimate authority. And our only proper response is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that's the place that we become useful in God's vineyard. And as we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and we become useful in God's vineyard, we serve him because we want other people to be grafted in. We want people from every tribe, tongue, and nation 
to give glory and praise to the Lamb, the only one who is worthy. I give you this illustration and we're going to pray. The story is told of a Danish king named Canute who ruled over England from 1014 to 1035. As all earthly kings, he had quite a checkered past, but King Canute, at one point in his reign, grew tired of hearing his people flatter him with extravagant praises about how great he was and how powerful he was and how invincible he was. So there's a story told uh, that he ordered his chair to be set down by the seashore where he commanded the waves not to come in and to wet him. But no matter how forcefully he ordered the tide not to come in, his order was not obeyed. Pretty soon, the waves lapped around his chair. And one historian said after that, he never wore his crown again. He hung it on a statue of the crucified Christ. Friends, there's only one who's worthy to wear the crown. There's only one whose name is to be exalted. And it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we can either confess that in faith or we can express it in judgment. It's a lot better now to express it in faith. And to receive him as Savior and Lord of your life. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we come toward a time of close. Maybe today you've not taken that step of repentance and faith. And if you were honest, you would have to say that Jesus is not Savior and Lord of your life. The scripture says that if you will confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Would you submit to his authority today and trust in him as your Savior and Lord? Maybe you've already taken that step, but for whatever reason, you're not serving very faithfully and fruitfully in the vineyard and you've lost sight of whatever it is that is God's purpose for your life. And maybe you need to pray a prayer to the Lord and just say, Lord, I want to bear fruit. I don't want to be like the worthless ones. I want by my life to show others that I believe in you and that you're worthy of praise and honor and glory. God will help you in that. He'll give you the grace that you need. He'll sustain you. If you desire to be fruitful in his vineyard. Father, we thank you today that we have the truth in your word. We don't have anything else to share that is good, that has not come from you. We humble ourselves in your sight. God, help us to understand what healthy authority looks like in the person of Jesus Christ. May we submit ourselves, God, under your mighty hand and know that you are the God of heaven who loves with an everlasting love. And may you find our lives faithful and fruitful in all that we do. Lord, encourage us through your word. Encourage us as we've been reminded here together today of this Jesus whom we serve. 
And I pray that our lives would exalt him in everything that we do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you will.